What do we do after the fires, the floods, the pandemic? We live in a crisis-rich environment. And how do we learn and prepare for next time? My name is Will Small and this is Olivia Wolf. We believe stories are one of the most powerful learning and evolutionary tools we have. And this, this orange glow is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, this is not good. So we've listened to people's stories about disaster recovery, community resilience and mental well-being. From firefighters to clinical psychologists. There was a family that were actually protecting their house and they actually gave up their their Christmas lunch. Small business owners to communities who have experienced loss and communities that have survived together. It's not often that people intentionally go out of their way to get to know their neighbours these days. These are conversations about what has happened, what may happen and how we can prepare for the future. It was an ordeal that we'll never forget. This is Emergency Ready Now. This podcast is presented by Central Coast Council and lead by story and jointly funded by the Commonwealth and the New South Wales State Government under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. The views expressed are the opinions of the individuals interviewed. Please be aware these topics may be sensitive, particularly if you have personally been affected by bushfires. If you need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 4636. We might talk a lot about how disasters affect us and the things we can do to take care of our own mental health. But what about our young people? How do we look after the children in our lives, especially when they might not yet have the language to express what they've been going through? How might we lead and make space for young people to speak up and become a part of these conversations? I had the privilege of speaking with Andrea Baldwin, who works at the Queensland Centre for Perinatal and Infant Mental Health. Andrea is an experienced facilitator, researcher, and she specialises in arts, community capacity building, and education. Andrea shares how we can sit with big feelings that surface in a crisis and also teach our kids to sit with those big feelings. Queensland Centre for Perinatal and Infant Mental Health has got two parts. There's a clinical team who deliver infant mental health services in the greater Brisbane area. And there's a statewide team who are basically about building the continuum for perinatal and infant mental health services across the state of Queensland. Uh, We also have a lot of work that we do at the national level and to some extent at the international level. So certainly bringing along people's awareness of the mental health and well-being of mums and dads from conception to two years after the end of a pregnancy and um, infant mental health, which we talk about beginning at conception, even though actually the, the health of mum and dad preconception is also really important, mm. um, but, but during pregnancy and up until around about age four or about the age that the child goes to school. Yeah, wow. That must be really fascinating work and I have to say I haven't heard um, too much about that sort of yeah mental health in the context of infants and and obviously that parenthood journey as well being linked in with that. Um, so I'm sure you have plenty of interesting stories to to tell. Um, this podcast has generally been looking at uh, community resilience and kind of what we do, um, you know, to prepare for and recover from disasters and crisis events and things of this nature. So having lots of conversations with people that are 
um, in the RFS or have uh, experience responding to communities in the wake of crisis events like bushfires, things like that. But I'd be interested in your perspective, just thinking about this crazy period of time that we're living in and and sort of all the the natural disasters, bushfires, things like that, you know, COVID-19, kind of just a, a new thing every day, it seems. What do you think this means for children and young people in our community from your perspective with the work that you are doing? Okay. So at present, I'm kind of seconded from my normal role. So normally I'm a service development leader with a lot of different responsibilities, but at this time, I manage the Birdies Tree Initiative. So um, this started out as a way to help uh, babies and young children and their parents to cope with, to prepare for, cope with and recover from natural disasters. So it started in 2011 when three quarters of Queensland was a disaster declared. We had tropical cyclone Yazi, we had flash flooding, had flooding across the state. And we were starting to see young children with emotional and behavioural disturbances as a result of their lives being very disrupted by those natural disasters. And that has evolved until in 2018, we launched the Birdies Tree Resources, which is a set of storybooks. Um, there are games online for children to play. There's information for parents and it's uh, an all hazards approach. So floods, fires, cyclones, uh, drought, um, our, our latest one is Birdie and the Virus, which is about the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's two characters, Birdie and Mr. Frog, who go through these really difficult events, but with help from friends and from each other and through their own, drawing on their own strengths, they, they get through and they're better and stronger on the other side because they've had these experiences of dealing with big feelings and coming out the other side. Interestingly, although we develop the resources for zero to four-year-olds, we're finding that children at least up to the end of primary school are really benefiting because the messages are the same. Um, it's, it's okay to talk about big feelings. You're not alone. You're safe and loved and cared about. There are adults are going to take care of the big stuff. Um, you can get through this. Your family can get through this. And those messages of, of reassurance and of um, helping kids to know that they can cope are really beneficial for all ages. They're actually beneficial for parents as well. Mm. Oh, I bet. I have a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old and we actually just watched um, the movie Inside Out, uh, oh, you know, speaking of big feelings. And um, yeah, I've thought a number of times this year, obviously, you know, the adult experience of living through 2020 is one thing, but what's it like for kids who are going to look back as, as this is kind of the world they entered this was normal for them it's not the new normal really for for infants or children um so those kind of resources that you're talking about are brilliant what you think are the qualities that we need to be building into um, that next generation as we think about some of the challenges we're facing well i can actually give you some some hard data some stats about what's going on for the youngest age group for the um what the younger age group for um, children aged one to five because our centre has been very involved in the COVID-19 unmasked study. So I can tell you the figures for that one to five-year-olds, and they're very similar, I, I believe, for the six to 17-year-olds, which actually tell us that about 80% of children are doing just fine with COVID-19. Mm. And the things that are uh, contributing to that are if they've got a warm, loving, nurturing relationship with 
at least one parent or caregiver, um, some sort of routine in their, in their days, some structure, some predictability that they can count on, uh, age-appropriate information about the pandemic, and this counts for any natural disaster or any stressful thing that's going on in the world. Some parents think, oh, it's best not to talk with them about it because it'll upset them, but actually they pick up bits and pieces of information from everywhere. The less they actually understand, the more emotionally they're vulnerable to being worried because they don't know what's going on. So age-appropriate, supportive conversation about what's happening. Find out what they know, what they think. It's a good opportunity to correct any misperceptions they might have. Um, young children do tend to get hold of the wrong end of the stick sometimes and can be really, really worried about things that an adult wouldn't have thought was a worry. So one of the stories that I heard was a, a child who thought that if you go out at night, you can catch COVID-19. Um, and a young man who got terribly worried and upset because people around him weren't wearing masks. So having those conversations with the children is really good. Another protective factor is limiting their exposure to media. So the concerned voices of, of announcers and the scary visuals um, can be really disconcerting for kids. So trying to keep them away from overwhelming news reporting and, and media, but at the same time having those conversations with them in a language that they can understand so that they can feel reassured. It's hard with pre-verbal children because you don't always know what they're thinking, but they often express themselves through their play, through their behaviour, through drawing, um, the songs that they choose to sing. And that's where uh, a book can be useful too, to sit down and tell them a story about what's happening. And they will use that as, as kind of a springboard for having conversations. So we had a story of a child who went through the bushfires and he was very excited when grandma read Birdie in the Fire with him. And even though he didn't have a lot of language, he kept saying safe, Birdie is safe. And then kind of asking questions about whether the family was safe and whether he was safe. And grandma hadn't realized that he was worrying about whether his family was now safe from the bushfires. So that's where a structured story can really help. One thing I've really noticed in my work in primary schools is that the kids are really good at telling you what you need to do to help to keep yourself and others safe from COVID. So they will say, you've got to wash your hands, you've got to use hand sanitizer, you've got to keep 1.5 metres away, you've got to stay home if you're sick, you've got to cover your coughs and sneezes. They are really good at that and there's an enthusiasm and a delight in telling you that. And what that says to me is they've got some sense of agency, they've got some sense of power over this. There's something that they can actively do mm. to help keep themselves and others safe. And that's a really strong protective factor when kids feel there is something useful that they can do. Mm. I love that. Makes me think as well that, um, you know, in terms of more of the climate um, emergencies we might see in the future and obviously the kind of um, the ongoing impact that we're going to see of climate change, young people tend to be incredibly switched on about that tend to be some of the loudest kind of advocates for change in that space and demonstrate a level of leadership. Um, do you have Absolutely. any observations in that area around what you see maybe emerging in terms of children and young people and thinking about the natural environment? You're quite right. There's a lot of young people who are taking those leadership roles and are really switched on about environmental issues. And I guess what I'd like to see is adults channeling that and encouraging that and helping them 
to take actions and be able to see results. So what, what we see is a lot of schools setting up programs and um, programs that have been part of the recovery effort after bushfires that actually helps to build community resilience in the future. And I'm thinking about some projects that happened in the Strathewan area where the children took responsibility for uh, estimating the fire danger each day and setting the fire danger rating because of everything that they had learned about how the, the temperature and the wind conditions and the weather conditions, um, the dryness of the country, the shape of the country, how all of these things contribute to uh, fire danger. And so they had learned how to predict the fire danger for the day. And that was sort of their job that they were doing that for the community. Um, so I think it's really important for young people to gain that sense of science and that understanding of the weather that can start really young. I'm seeing quite a few programs in early childhood centres where kids are learning about the weather. Learning too, there's a really interesting point about language. So in the Sendai framework, they don't talk about natural disasters anymore. They talk about uh, natural hazards because a hazard doesn't have to be a disaster if you prepare for it appropriately and cope with it appropriately. We've had you know, many events that were quite dramatic and, and um, scary and disruptive, but in fact, communities come through without loss of life because they've, they've been vigilant and they've taken the right actions. And yes, it's been a difficult, challenging, frightening time, but everybody has come through it. And I think it's really important for us to think about that. Up in, um, up in North Queensland, uh, cyclones are a really common fact of life. And people in cyclone prone areas are used to them. They say, okay, well, the predictions are there's a cyclone on the way, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And they do those things fairly calmly, and then they come out the other side. Flooding is a natural part of um, the cycle in many parts of Australia. Drought actually is a part of the natural cycle. Um, heat waves, we can expect heat waves. Mm. So being able to expect things and, and understand weather patterns and understand that these are events that will happen that we don't have to freak out about, but we have to be vigilant and ready and prepared, that, that whole idea of preparedness mm. and, and know who our support people are and, and who our support network is and call on them and be, be ready to make use of them. There's there's almost not too early an age that you can start preparing kids to, to live with weather. Then something like, something comes along like COVID-19, nobody saw it coming, um, but it, and it has been disruptive. But if you look at the way that people have pulled together and made sensible decisions and got on board with the uh, precautions, we've done really, really well. And the children mm. have been a part of that. And I think it's important for them to know that. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I, I was thinking about during uh, some of what you were just sharing was the idea that sometimes we can have this temptation to kind of view community as children and adults and children are just adults kind of waiting to be formed um, and we just need to kind of, I don't know, mind them while they grow up. But mm. actually it's so much richer and more true, I think, to actually have a view that children are an equally valid part of our community they have leadership qualities, they have creativity, they have imaginative, innovative, adaptive minds, incredible resilience. 
And just those images of them helping to check the temperature or, or being involved in a, in a real way rather than um, just a cutesy sort of way, I think actually is, is a picture of a resilient community to me. And, um, you know, I wonder if there are ways that we can, yeah, maybe shift our thinking to, to do some of this stuff more alongside and learning with um, still kind of obviously leading and, and helping the development of children, but maybe just shifting our view a little bit in terms of how we think about children regarding the future. A- any thoughts that sparks for you? I was thinking about another project that happened in out of the Black Saturday bushfires where the children made an animation about preparedness. And the, the main message was that when when it's a very high risk day, the safest thing to do is to evacuate preemptively. Yes, it was being guided by adult artists, but it was harvesting the children's ideas and what they mm. did was was really special and amazing. Mm. I've been working with children creating group stories about getting through hard times, um, which is really good for them for reinforcing those messages about here are some here are the words for big feelings. It's okay to talk about big feelings. Here are some of the things that you do to draw on help and to come out the other side. I did meet one lovely young woman who was involved in setting up a youth space after the fires where young people could just come and hang out and talk or not talk or just feel safe and feel that they were with other people. And it was really, really therapeutic for that community. And that that young lady, I think, was in her late teens at the time that she set that up. Mm. So you mustn't underestimate people just because they're young. Absolutely. Uh, that's that's great. I mean, my experience of parenting, it's funny, I'm not just raising children, they're, they're raising a parent because I'm learning so much from the things they tell me and the things they open my eyes up to and, and all of that. So very much agree with that. What would be your kind of words of advice to parents, grandparents, teachers, people that have those kind of key influential roles in the lives of children and young people? One of the things that we say is you don't have have to have the answer to all your child's questions. You are the answer. So long as they have that that relationship with you where they know that you're there and that you care about them, that you want to understand what they're experiencing, um, that you're tuned into their feelings, that really does a lot to help protect children and young people. Um, Not dismissing their feelings, not ignoring them, not just telling them to oh, well, you know, pull yourself together. Everybody's going through this. Actually, just being really tuned in um, and to some extent honest about your own feelings. You certainly don't want to burden children with all of your stresses and anxieties, but it's okay to say, yes, this happened. I, I can see you feel sad. I feel sad about it too. It, it is sad that this and this and this happened, that we had these losses and we, we didn't get to do that thing that was so important to us. Um, but but then you also, you can play a really big role in helping the child to focus on the positive things. So we didn't get to go and have grandma's you know, 80th birthday that everybody had been really looking forward to. Um, but, you know, we, we still got to talk with her by video and now the restrictions have lifted and we can go and visit her now and, and have an even better time because we're, we're so happy to be able to be together. So helping children to focus on, I often say gratitude isn't a, isn't a fluffy thing. It's a survival strategy. You actually mm. need to be able to focus on the positive, focus on what you have and what you can feel grateful for um, to maintain your mental health. 
Mm. And teaching children to do that from an early age, I think, is a really valuable thing for resilience. Gratitude is a survival strategy. I love that. I will absolutely be uh, taking that one and using it in a few contexts. Brilliant. Um, as well as, you know, the, the work that you, you do with, with children, um, you also delve into the world of, of writing and, and storytelling and journaling and helping others to do these things, which I'm very interested in because I'm actually a poet and a writer myself and um, do a bit of work that I imagine has some crossover with what you do. But what do you see as the link between some of those creative practices and in particular writing um, and, yeah, resilience and, and well-being? I wish we had all day. Um, so I wrote my first poem when I was three. I didn't write it. I composed it. I don't remember that one, but my mother tells me I was three when I made my first poem. The first one I have written down is from when I was seven. So I was writing poetry and short stories and, um, and turning experience into, uh, I want to say works of art. My, my seven-year-old poem is not particularly artistic, but it, it was a way of experiencing things and feeling things and thinking things and um, processing them and transforming them and putting them on the page and making them something that I could share with others and share with myself later on, be able to read back over. So um, there's a lot of emphasis on journaling as a therapeutic technique or as a self-help technique. And I, I completely endorse that. I think journaling is great. There are practices such as morning pages where you get up first thing in the morning and you just fill three pages with longhand writing of whatever is in your head. Um, there are practices of writing through difficult events by keeping a journal. I, I certainly personally, I will share this, once went through a very hard time and the way that I coped with it was writing everything that happened and all of my thoughts about it. And I had a couple of rules. One was that I couldn't stop to put it artistically or creatively. I just had to write it down as it was and that I couldn't change anything or cross anything out and then I couldn't reread it. I couldn't read back over anything I'd written. Mm. So I just wrote and processed that time by writing quite a long document. And at the end, I, it occurred to me and I, it occurred to me as I wrote it and I wrote, and I don't think I need to write this journal anymore and closed it and put it away. I actually have never reread it, but it really, really helped me to process the experience I was going through at the time. Mm. So I think journaling is great and a lot of uh, therapists will recommend journaling but I actually think there's huge amounts of value in transforming experience into a story a poem a song bringing your creativity to it a drawing some people are, are visual artists rather than verbal artists um, bringing your creativity to that experience taking control over it in some way and transforming it through the lens of yourself um, gives you a tremendous sense of control over it, that it's not just this thing that happened to you and there's nothing you can do about it. It's a thing that happened and you take it as raw material and change it into something else. I just read a therapeutic story recently um, where this young man had had a very frightening experience through the bushfire and with the help of his counsellor and his parents, he wrote the story of the day of the bushfire and, and his job had been to take care of the dog and the story emphasises all the good things that he did, what a great job he did. He looked after the dog. He helped mum keep an eye on the fire. Um, the people who were there fighting the fire, they did their bit. Mum did her bit. Everybody did a great job. And they all came through safely. So for him to write that and then to write about his worrying memories and, 
and the feelings that he had after the fire and the, and the strategies and techniques that he used with the help of the counsellor to get on top of those feelings and to feel okay again. Um, that's a very beautiful little book with illustrations. And um, I think that it was probably very therapeutic for him at the time, but I think it will also be great for him to look back on later and go, yeah, I got through that. I did a good job there. Mm. Yeah, you're, you're speaking my language for sure. I think there's... Um... <laughs> so much value in both of those practices. I often talk to people about the daily dump. You know, it's a good thing yep. to take a dump every day. We kind of know that on a certain biological level. And it's the same thing to do that with our brain and just get it out on a page and to not have to look back at it. There's a lot of value in that. But then exactly like you're saying, to be able to kind of own the story or rewrite the story uh, or present the story in a, a creative way that will connect with another person is um, good for us and good for others. Um, yeah. A lot of people, I guess, tend to view this and think that's nice for the creatives or that's nice for the for the writers. Um, but I often want to broaden it out and kind of just recommend it to anybody. Um, what do, what would you say to the to the person who's like, well, that sounds lovely, but it's n- I'm not a I'm not a writer, or you know, they have that fear about um, that creative process. How do you kind of encourage people to get started? Hmm. Well, I, I would want to respect people in what what they're drawn to and what they're not. So if somebody says, I'm not a writer, I hate English, words bore me, um, it's exhausting to put pen to paper, okay, I'm not going to say that you should put pen to paper, but what is it that excites you and energises you and makes you feel creative? Um, I, I think it's actually important for people to follow their passions and the things that make them happy and the things that make them feel connected with others. So I know for some people, playing a team sport makes them feel really connected with others. And maybe they're socialising with those people and articulating their feelings um, and processing their experiences through their sporting life. There are a lot of people who want to express themselves creatively, but they're afraid because our our society says, unless you can do that to the highest possible level Mm. and win X Factor or do it for a living... Uh, you're not entitled to do it. And I so deeply and passionately disagree with that, Mm. particularly in the context of resilience and coping and mental health and well-being. I believe that wherever you are on your journey, there's always going to be someone who's better at that art than you are. And there's always going to be someone who's earlier in their journey than you are. And it doesn't matter. It's not a competition. It's not um, one person comparing themselves with another. It's about your enjoyment and your what you're getting out of it. It's a way of being connected with yourself. So I was talking about connecting with others and that we can connect with others and communicate through art. But it's also, more importantly, a way of connecting with yourself, with your own feelings, your own experiences, your own need to express yourself and who you are, your own need to find your place in the world and, and, um, and make that a beautiful place to be. And if you've been through a really difficult experience or you're going through a difficult experience, you have every right to express that and and to paint or to sing or to write. And there's lots of support around for that. Parents and teachers and other people around should be nurturing those um, expressive impulses Mm. and not judging them or trying to suppress them or trying to say, you know, you don't have any talent for this, do something else. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. Um, the last couple of weeks driving around with my five-year-old, 
uh, we've been doing some freestyle rapping together and um, he just gets so into it. And it, like for an adult, even for a late teenager, it's like the most terrifying thing you can possibly do to just kind of put your words out in the open, very unfiltered, very immediate, kind of off the cuff. Absolutely terrifies people, terrifies me, and it's something I've been doing for, for years. Um, it seems like there is that kind of thing that unfortunately happens to most of us where we become increasingly self-critical and the creativity that maybe we were more freely able to express as children, um, whether it's cultural reasons or just part of growing up, we sort of become very disconnected with that. Um, do you think there's anything we could do to try and kind of help to, to safeguard or to, um, you know, protect the creativity of young people and, and you know, make, make it less of a journey of recovery or is that just how it is? Oh, look, it's a cultural thing. I think the more we have these kinds of discussions, the better. Um, for adults, I would really recommend a couple of books. So I'm going to plug a couple of books. One is Betty Edwards' Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain because she does explore this thing that a lot of us will draw happily and creatively to about age 11. And then our inner critic gets so overwhelming that we stop. And then we say, oh, I can't draw. I'm not talented. Um, some years ago, I picked up this book and started doing Betty's exercises, and I actually can draw. I've, I've, until Since quite young, I've thought, well, I'm good at words, but I can't draw. Mm. I actually can draw, and the more time and effort that I put into it, the better I would get at it, and I believe that's probably true of everyone. The other one is uh, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, mm. and there's a lot in there about dealing with the inner critic and that, that voice that says, you're no good at this, you're not entitled to do this, you have no right, what do you think you're doing, everybody's laughing at you. And I think a lot of us have that inner critic in a lot of areas. And because I used to be an adolescent psychologist and because I have two young adult children, I can say with great confidence that teenagers are particularly um, the victims of that inner critic and that sense of the imaginary audience, that idea that everyone's watching and everyone's criticising and, and you're terrified of putting a foot wrong and You've got to try to fit in with everybody else. Um, the thing I'd say to those teenagers is it's just not true that they're not watching. They really aren't watching because they're too anxious about themselves. Mm. <laughs> People are really worrying about um, fitting in themselves and being acceptable and it's okay to be who you are. And people will say that to you all the time and it takes you forever to actually accept it, but it's actually true. It's, mm. it's okay to be who you are. So the more adults can encourage that in children and young people to say, do, follow that impulse, do that creative thing. It's, you know, it may not win an award or it may not get an A at school or you, you may not pass that audition and get into that particular choir. That's okay. That doesn't mean you should stop doing the thing. Keep doing it because the more you do it, the better you get at it. And if you enjoy it, it doesn't matter if you never get great at it. Just do it. And enjoy it. I love that. Mm. Oh, I'm I'm so glad we've had this conversation because um, I guess so many of the conversations around um, disaster recovery, community resilience, uh, you know, rightfully so, are about I guess what we would perceive as more kind of practical, um, down to earth kind of um, things than talking about poetry and storytelling and creativity. But I really believe that this is uh, needs to be within that conversation because it does add so much um, humanity um, to, you know, when we think about the community, we're not just um, 
a, a set of houses to be protected, as important as that kind of thing is, but we, we need to protect the um, the human spirit. And I think that this is an important part of um, the art that comes out of a community that goes through great suffering or that, that goes through anything together, really. So, yeah, thank you, Andrea, for, for your perspectives around all of this. Love to just bring the conversation kind of full circle and thinking about um, the time that we are living in and, and what may lie ahead for us. Um, just would love to get your kind of general thoughts on what you would love to see as maybe some of the lessons we would learn out of this current time, uh, thinking about how we could position ourselves for, for the future. Life is unpredictable. It's the nature of life. We, we often, distress lies in the gap between expectations and reality. Reality is not going to change. Reality is whatever it is. Um, so it's up to us to think about our expectations. And uh, I think John Lennon said, life's what happens when you're busy making other plans. <laughs> if you're um, making plans and thinking that things are going to be a particular way and getting very attached to particular things like houses or cars or objects, um, and then things don't go as you expect, then that's likely to cause a lot of distress. So if you can accept that life is unpredictable, it's often unfair, things happen that nobody warned you about. And if parents and adults can be sort of raising children to understand that too, we, we plan as best we can, but we can't hold on to those plans as if they're set in stone because things happen that you, you didn't expect. So that's not a time to panic or to drop the ball or to think, oh, no, it's, it, everything's over. Um, we, we carry on. We pull together. It's really important to have that sense that things can go wrong. We need to know who we can call on. We need to know what are we going to do. If we can have that long-sighted view and, and raise our children to have that long-sighted view, and the most important thing is to raise our children to know that we love them and we're always going to be there for them. We care about them. We listen to them. Their feelings matter. Their thoughts matter. Their actions matter. And helping them to feel some sense of agency and, and control over the things that they can control. Yeah, Andrea, thank you so much. Uh, there's been a lot of gold in this conversation. I've personally got a lot out of it, been very encouraged and inspired. I'm sure others will also. So um, thank you so much for your time. Will's conversation with Andrea taught me a lot of valuable things about how we can include and care for the young people in our communities. Throughout our conversation so far, we've reiterated the importance of having plans and constructing our own toolkits. However, it's also important to be adaptable to change and know how to respond supportively to those around us. There is almost not too early an age to start preparing kids for the changes that occur in life and in particular, changes in our environment and the emergencies that result because of them. Andrew explains that children are not just bystanders, but can be active forces in their families and communities when we encourage and make space for them. It can actually reduce the anxiety of the young people in our lives if we encourage them in an age-appropriate conversation and initiatives of preparedness. Andrea also taught us today that big feelings from a disaster are okay and natural and that we can channel them through journaling, songs and through helpful techniques like that from birdie books, 
which we will link in the show notes for this episode if you want to learn more. What stood out to you from this conversation? One of the key themes of Emergency Ready Now is community connectedness. So if this episode was useful for you, we encourage you to share it with someone and have a conversation about it. You can also help more people find this by giving it a rating and review on Apple Podcast or sharing it through your social media. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can listen to next week's episode as soon as it's released. Until then, let's take care of each other and continue to become emergency ready now.